Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The shale revolution in the United States is now more than a decade old. In the intervening years, energy companies have tapped vast, previously uneconomical oil and natural gas resources through a suite of technologies, including hydraulic fracturing, commonly called fracking, and horizontal drilling. The results have been dramatic. Today, the U.S. is a leading producer of oil and the top global supplier of natural gas. But the shale revolution has also bred controversy as the country has struggled to balance fracking's economic and environmental impacts. Those for and against fracking have often gone to great lengths to promote their views. Along the way, previously quiet communities from Pennsylvania to North Dakota have struggled to accommodate waves of drilling rigs and energy workers. Today's guest spent several years traveling the country to get to know the communities where fracking takes place. Daniel Ramey's travels led to his new book titled The Fracking Debate, The Risks, Benefits, and Uncertainties of the Shale Revolution. The book seeks to relate the perspective of communities and citizens on fracking's front lines and provide unbiased answers to some of the biggest questions surrounding fracking. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. It's great to be with you. Daniel is a senior research associate at Resources for the Future, where he focuses on energy and climate policy. He also teaches energy policy at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan and is a faculty affiliate at the University of Michigan Energy Institute. So, Daniel, once again, thanks for coming on the podcast and congratulations on the book, uh, which I've had the pleasure of reading. I thought we'd start out by, I'd like to ask about your work and how you came about writing the fracking debate in which you set out to provide a level-headed view of fracking. Well, this project started probably back in 2012 when I was in graduate school at Duke University in North Carolina. I was doing an internship for the North Carolina Department of Environment, and the state legislature asked the department to do a study on the potential impacts of shale gas development in North Carolina. Uh, I raised my hand and volunteered to work on that study, and for some reason, they let me do it. So uh, so I started getting to know the topic of shale gas and oil development and uh, got really fascinated by it. Uh, it was a fascinating subject for, for many reasons. Um, over the next couple of years, I dove even more deeply into this topic, specifically through a research project that I carried out with my colleague Richard Newell, uh, first at Duke University and now at Resources for the Future. Richard and I uh, started up a project that we called the Shale Public Finance Project. And the idea with this project was to examine how local governments around the United States were affected, for better or for worse, by the increased oil and gas development that had been taking place. And as part of that research, I traveled to uh, every major oil and gas producing region in the United States, so 16 states, 21 different regions over several years. And I interviewed um, literally hundreds of local government officials, as well as more informal interviews uh, with all sorts of people who I met in and around those places. Um, so that's kind of the research basis for the book. And then the reason I thought the book would be useful is uh, whenever I would talk to friends or family or you know meet someone new um, at a friend's house or over a dinner table, uh, and I mentioned that I was working on fracking, uh, there were a set of questions that people continually asked, questions about water, questions about earthquakes, questions about climate change. And uh, I didn't 
see a great resource out there to kind of clearly answer those questions for non-experts. Uh, and so I thought I could combine some of the travels that I did and some of the stories that I collected with straightforward reviews of the evidence on those topics, and that's what led to this book. Now, you also said, and just referring to what you, you said a moment ago, uh, that a lot of your conversations weren't in council buildings and state legislatures, but were actually in bars with people that you met after work. Why was that? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, it was a really a little bit of both. So I, I spent a lot of time during the days uh, having formal interviews with local government officials, and I would meet with experts from uh, state government or from advocacy organizations or from the industry. But then once the evening rolled around, it was 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock, and I was in the middle of Oklahoma in some town where I didn't know anybody. And so I would find a place to have dinner and usually sit at the bar and talk to the bartender or whoever was next to me and ask uh, a different set of questions, questions about how the community has changed over the last several years. A lot of times I find myself sitting next to uh, people working in the oil and gas industry. I would learn about the type of work that they did uh, and learn about how it had taken them to different parts of the country. And so I, I felt good about being able to gather stories both in formal ways and then in these much less formal ways. I also spend a lot of time driving from place to place in North Dakota or Texas or Oklahoma or even Alaska. And along those drives, you see a lot and learn a lot about how the industry is uh, affecting the landscape uh, and affecting the communities where it operates. So that was fascinating. And then the final piece of research that I did for this book was uh, look very carefully through a variety of strains of academic literature on the topics that I address in the book that I mentioned a few moments ago. And uh, along the way, I've been really lucky to get to know some of the top experts in these fields. Um, people who have authored seminal studies on risks of water contamination, earthquakes, economic impacts, and other topics. So I, I feel like I've been able to uh, corral these different perspectives and hopefully present them in a coherent way in this book. Now, one of the first things you get to in the book is uh, controversy over the actual definition of the word fracking. And, and I pulled a passage on this from the book that I'd, I'd like to read. It's a brief passage. And you wrote... While the oil and gas industry has developed a deep understanding of fracking over its decades of use, the concept is still being defined in the public imagination. And both pro- and anti-fracking advocates have sought to define the word to suit their purposes. What are these definitions and why are they so important? It's a great question. First, let me try to define hydraulic fracturing for, for your listeners and so we all know what we're talking about uh, from, from the starting point. Hydraulic fracturing or fracking is a process by which companies mix together large volumes of water, sand, and a mixture of chemicals and pump that mixture into an already drilled oil or gas well. Sometimes people refer to fracking as a drilling technique. It's not. It's actually a process that happens after drilling takes place, and it's a type of uh, what the industry calls well stimulation. It's a way to get the oil or gas reservoir to produce more oil or gas than it otherwise would. And the industry has been stimulating reservoirs in all sorts of ways, basically since its inception in the 1850s in, in northeastern Pennsylvania. So hydraulic fracturing is a type of well stimulation. Now, there is an expansive definition of fracking that some people use, and there's a narrow definition of fracking. What I just described is the narrow definition. 
but the expansive definition takes fracking to mean the entire oil and gas industry. So instead of referring to fracking as a discrete process, some people might refer to fracking wells or the fracking industry or fracking pipelines. And while that's not technically accurate, uh, it's become a fairly common way of using the term. I find that opponents of the industry pretty much always use this expansive definition when referring to fracking, partly because the word itself, fracking, is not a beautiful word. It evokes uh, vulgarity and, uh, you know, it just doesn't sound like the sort of thing you would want happening next door. Uh, now, when you get to uh, the industry and proponents of the industry, they start off often using the more narrow definition of fracking, the more precise definition of fracking. And when they do this, they will usually use the narrow definition when referring to the risks of oil and gas development. So if there is a spill at a well site or if there is another problem that can lead to contamination and that problem is not caused by the direct process of hydraulic fracturing, the industry will say, oh, no, that's not hydraulic fracturing, that's a spill. Or that's not hydraulic fracturing, that's a problem with well cementing and casing. And often they're technically accurate about that. Where it gets problematic is that proponents of the industry also use the expansive definition of fracking, the big definition of fracking, when they talk about the benefits. So when they talk about the economic benefits of the shale revolution or when they talk about energy security benefits, they might say that fracking has led to this many jobs or fracking has led to this boost to the economy. And the use of those um, the different uses of the word, I think, creates a lot of confusion uh, among the public, and it also leads proponents and opponents uh, of the industry to talk past each other, almost like they're speaking a different language. So one of the goals of the book uh, is to try to clear up that confusion and hopefully increase and improve the quality of the conversation on this complex topic. It all sounds like it's really one one big bucket, though, right? I mean, fracking is a very discrete process, but there's so much that goes along with it. And obviously, as you just mentioned, it's it's just been leveraged, uh, leveraged in that way to 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 prove certain points. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, uh, fracking is a really important technology that's been uh, deployed by the oil and gas industry, and without fracking. Uh, I don't think we would have a shale revolution. That said, there are other technologies that have been as important um, uh, or nearly as important as fracking itself, and that includes high-quality, precise horizontal drilling, as well as really high-quality seismic imaging that the industry deploys, financial engineering, and other advances that have um, worked with fracking to enable this huge growth in production of both oil and natural gas. Now, much of the book is about the spelling exaggerated claims of, of benefits and risks made by all sides. What has been the impact of so much hyperbole uh, as it relates to fracking? To me, what the hyperbole does around this topic is it increases the polarization uh, on the topic of oil and gas development or fracking in particular. And it, in this way, it's not so different from other politically divisive issues that uh, we see in the headlines most days. The, uh, what's happened is that uh, Republicans and Democrats have um, 
you know, I'm, I'm speaking broadly here, but Republicans and Democrats have sort of staked out their positions on opposite ends of this debate. Uh, I think the default position for many Democrats is that fracking is bad, full stop. And the default position for many Republicans is that fracking is good, full stop. And that can lead to one side making the argument that we should ban it all, and the other side making the argument that we should drill it all. And that type of polarization makes it hard to find a path forward where you can both realize the benefits, which are very real, of the shale revolution, and also minimize the risks, which are very real, of the shale revolution. And so what I think the hyperbole does is it makes it harder for the sides to talk together and makes it harder for the sides to come up with constructive solutions uh, that can um, really improve uh, outcomes for the communities that are experiencing oil and gas development, as well as uh, the nation as a whole. Okay, now, now drilling down, and no pun intended on, on what you just said in terms of these, the, you know, these different perspectives, you make a very interesting observation in the book, and that is that perspectives seem to get more extreme the further you are away from the places where drilling actually takes place. Can you explain that? Absolutely. This observation comes from kind of two pathways. One is personal experience, and the other is uh, research on this topic. So the personal experience is that uh, I've lived in Durham, North Carolina, and Ann Arbor, Michigan for most of the last six or seven years. Uh, these are both really lovely places to live. I love both cities, and uh, they are college towns. They both tend to be uh, fairly liberal. And I find that when I go to the movies or when I go to the farmer's market uh, in either one of these towns, I'm often asked to sign ban fracking petitions. Uh, there will be uh, folks carrying clipboards, and they'll be trying to get a ballot measure on for the next election. And what I notice is that when I was in Williston, North Dakota, or when I was in Midland, Texas, or when I was in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, I never was asked to sign a ban fracking petition. And these are the places where fracking takes place. Uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Durham, North Carolina, there is really no oil and gas industry to speak of in these cities. And this reflects the idea that the further you get from the places where oil and gas production takes place, the more people tend to have a black and white view of the industry. As I said a moment ago, you tend to find Democrats being very uh, skeptical or opposed to the industry, and conservatives tend to be very supportive of the industry. And when you look at the academic research on this topic, there are not a whole lot of studies out there, but they tend to support this idea that the more distance you get from an oil and gas producing region, the more polarized people get and the more likely people's views are to be shaped simply by partisan affiliation. And when you get closer to the oil and gas industry, you find that people have complex views uh, about the benefits and the risks. That's something certainly that I observed firsthand when I interviewed people and they would say things to the effect of, well, this boom has been really great for the economy, and my son is thinking about staying around town and working in the industry rather than moving away. Uh, but I really hate the traffic, and I'm a little worried about this whole earthquake thing. Um, obviously, that's a, that's a simplified and stylized example, but those are the types of stories that I would hear all the time when I was talking to people in bars and in city halls around the United States. 
Um, you know, one of the issues you also bring up uh, in the book is that some of the impacts, the, the potentially negative impacts, are more concentrated when you get to the cities. For example, um, uh, water contamination or air pollution from, uh, from, you know, from drilling operations. Uh, and at the same time, some of the benefits uh, are also um, more or less concentrated the closer or further you get away from uh, the locations. How does that color the views of people uh, when, when they look at this? I think the direct experience of the benefits and the risks that these communities have faced over the last five to ten years has, first of all, colored people's views such that they they don't see this issue as a black and white issue. They may see it as more positive than negative or more negative than positive, but I did not have a, a single conversation with anyone in these oil and gas producing regions that thought it was either all good or all bad. Now, I know there are some people out there who are in these communities who are very pro-industry, uh, who are very anti-industry. But in my experience, meeting with the elected officials and meeting with just kind of regular folks out to eat at a restaurant or a bar, that wasn't the most common view. And so what that tells me is that there is a mix of good and bad. And one of the most interesting stories um, that I recount in the book that I'll briefly describe here is a story from a kind of a famous place on the oil and gas map, a place called Dimmick Township in Susquehanna County in Pennsylvania. And many of your listeners may be familiar with Dimmick or maybe even have been there. Dimmick is a place where there was a high-profile instance of water contamination from oil and gas drilling in the early days of the Marcellus Shale development. The contamination was not caused directly by fracking. Instead, it was caused by other errors in the oil and gas drilling process. Nonetheless, the Department of Environmental Protection in Pennsylvania found that uh, this one company was at fault for contaminating over a dozen uh, drinking water sources for homeowners in Dimmick Township. What the department did is they worked to resolve this issue uh, with the company and with the residents, and they also imposed a moratorium so that the company couldn't drill any new wells within nine miles of this source of contamination. Now, that might sound uh, like, like an understandable approach, and I, I think it is an understandable approach, but what I found when I went to Dimmick is that the people who lived uh, in this uh, one particular area where the contamination happened, you saw a lot of anti-fracking signs and you saw a lot of opposition to the industry. But if you start to zoom out and move further away from that road and you get into that nine-mile radius where no new drilling was taking place, many people in Dimmick actually wanted more drilling to occur because they wanted the economic benefits and the royalty revenue that would accrue to them if drilling took place. And so Dimmick uh, has been a poster child uh, for those who are opposed to oil and gas development. But if you dig down a little bit deeper, you actually see that it's really a poster child of the complexity of this issue, where you have some individuals in the community experiencing uh, harm and damage, and other individuals wanting to see more of the industry coming to town and actually more rather than less drilling. 
Did you get a sense in, in your conversations of how communities react to regulations that would put stricter controls, say, on stray gas? That's gas that escapes from wells and pipelines. It, it's a big issue here in Pennsylvania. You know, when 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 these regulations are proposed, do the communities see these as a threat uh, because they might, uh, you know, you know, economically harm uh, the the oil and gas companies operating in these areas? Or you know, what is their perspective? That's a great question, and and to be honest, I don't have a great answer for you. Most of the uh, support for or opposition to regulations, where you really see that debate playing out, or where I've seen it really playing out, has been in uh, the newspapers and in state government. Uh, I know that many individuals, certainly those who have been negatively affected by stray gas, uh, they would tend to be supportive of additional regulation, but uh, those who have been affected by stray gas are in the large minority, um, so there probably aren't a whole lot of them. Uh, and I know that many people have benefited from royalties that have come into them. So, uh, so I don't think I asked that specific question of many of the people that I spoke with, um, but I would have a sense that, again, there would be a mix of views uh, within these communities. Now, you write that the, the uh, impact on the communities of, of oil and gas development uh, it can also be very different depending on where those communities are located, for example, in Pennsylvania versus Texas. How are the perspectives different? That's a great question, and, and they're really different in, in lots of ways. Uh, it's easy to uh, – I think it's easy for some people who don't have much experience with the oil and gas industry to assume that it looks the same everywhere you go. Sometimes uh, I see a picture of an oil and gas well that uh, proponents or opponents might put up in an advertisement or, or in a movie clip that seeks to portray the oil and gas industry as if it is one thing in every place. The reality is that it is uh, adapted to its local environment, both its geological environment, its surface environment, its political environment, its economic environment, and really looks different depending on where you go. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, obviously there was a long history of oil and gas development, oil development in particular, going back to the 1850s in northeastern Pennsylvania. But more recently, the surge in shale development has, I think, brought about an entirely new scale of activity to southwestern Pennsylvania, northeastern Pennsylvania, and other regions where Marcellus development has really occurred. And for some of these communities, uh, this was a new experience, especially in northeastern Pennsylvania. There really hadn't been much oil and gas development previously. Uh, and what we found is that both communities and regulators uh, needed to get up to speed with these new technologies being deployed and with this new industry coming into town. And so in Pennsylvania in particular, I think there were some environmental challenges, some related to stray gas, others related to wastewater management, that uh, the regulatory system wasn't quite ready for uh, when shale development took off in Pennsylvania. As time has gone by, I think regulators have gained expertise, companies have gained expertise, uh, and the communities uh, and citizens have pushed for additional protections. And I think that has helped reduce some of the risks in Pennsylvania 
At the same time, if you look at a place like West Texas, the Permian Basin, they have been experiencing large-scale oil and gas development in the Permian since the early 20th century. And so this latest round of oil and gas development has been very intense, and it's brought a new boom to the region, but it's not an entirely new experience uh, for the folks who live out there. As a result, the regulators who work with the industry, the citizens who live in these towns, uh, I think they are less taken aback and perhaps a little bit less startled by this boom than their counterparts in Pennsylvania uh, or other parts of the country might be who have less experience with the industry. Well, there's also the flip side to that, which would be the bust. And I, I think you also uh, mentioned, uh, I, I think you went to a specific example, I, I believe, in, in North Dakota, where uh, you know, there had been the boom in oil drilling uh, and production, and that's calmed down a little bit in the last couple of years. And then suddenly these these towns that had you know, grown very rapidly. Uh, there'd been a lot of investment in homes and in schools and community centers and policing, et cetera. Suddenly the people were no longer there. And, and it sounds like that might be a new experience uh, for certain areas, whereas in Texas, not that it makes it any easier or less painful, but it, it's something that people, I guess, over the decades have, have learned to expect. That's a great observation. And you, it, I'm glad you brought up North Dakota because North Dakota, when you look at it and compare it to Pennsylvania, or even if you compare it to West Texas, it's a much more rural part of the country. There are far fewer people per square mile. Uh, in addition, North Dakota does have some experience with the oil and gas industry. But once again, this boom, uh, primarily brought about by drilling into the Bakken Formation in North Dakota, has really been of a scale that uh, no one else had experienced in their lifetimes uh, in the area. As a result, when the oil price crashed in late 2014 and stayed low through 2016, a lot of the local governments that uh, I got to know, uh, places like Williston, North Dakota, Williams County, Mackenzie County, Watford City, Dickinson, North Dakota, really beautiful places and, and lovely towns in a lot of ways, they have struggled to plan for and manage the volatility that is more or less inherent in this industry. As you uh, readily point out, Andy, West, West Texas, um, they've been through multiple booms and busts before, and um, people know that the industry isn't always going to be uh, roaring at its uh, uh, loudest. In North Dakota, I think the downturn hit them a little bit harder and has in some ways been harder to absorb because it is such a rural community. The uh, towns and counties where Baca development has taken place have been so transformed by the oil and gas industry that they've had a hard time dealing with the boom. And then when the bust comes, they have a harder time dealing with the bust because it has become such an important part of the local economy. The last thing I'll say about this is that over the last year or so, uh, I think we've actually seen relatively steady activity uh, in oil and gas producing regions. I wouldn't really characterize it as either a boom or a bust. Right now, I think in the Permian Basin, it's really booming. Things are really cooking out there. But in most oil and gas producing regions in the U.S., things are at something of a Goldilocks level for many of the communities that I'm familiar with in that they are not really being overrun by the oil and gas industry. But at the same time, there's enough activity going on so that uh, the economy is healthy and services are strong. 
Looking at the big picture, uh, Daniel, in the book you write, and and I quote uh, that the fracking genie is out of the bottle and you don't seriously entertain, nor does anyone you interview in the book entertain a world without fracking. Yet there are so many people who would ban it. And as you point out, uh, New York, here in the United States, obviously, France and Germany have actually banned fracking. So can you talk about, I guess, the, the philosophical disconnect between prioritizing risks uh, in a place like New York where they say we're not going to frack and, or prioritizing the gains, uh, which is in, in most other places, at least here in the U.S.? It's another really excellent question, and it's a tricky uh, it's a tricky one to answer. One thing that's worth pointing out is that there certainly are some advocates on the left. I'm thinking of the uh, the presidential campaign of Bernie Sanders uh, and and others who support him, who do advocate for a nationwide ban on fracking. Um, given the history of the last eighteen months in u s presidential politics, I would be uh, a fool to say that something is impossible, that something will never happen. So um, I wouldn't entirely rule out the possibility that someone like a Bernie Sanders could come along and seek to impose substantially more restrictive um, uh, policies on the oil and gas industry. Now, if, if I think a little bit more probabilistically, I think that's fairly unlikely. And places like Texas and North Dakota and Oklahoma uh, that have become or have been for years really dependent on this industry, I think the chances of them banning it by themselves is essentially zero. Now, if you think about comparing that attitude with the attitude of a place like New York State, which has essentially banned fracking, uh, I think what I come to is this term called the precautionary principle. And the precautionary principle essentially says that until you understand the full risks of a certain activity, it's best to not undertake that activity. So in the case of New York State, uh, the state did uh, years of review of hydraulic fracturing and related activities and decided that they didn't have enough information to know for sure that this activity was going to be safe. And so in the absence of that uh, information, they decided to not allow it to happen. And I, I think that's a, that's a position that has some uh, internal validity. Uh, it's justifiable, and obviously it has some political support in New York as well as in places like France and Germany. But where it gets tricky is that it, it can be hard to apply the precautionary principle to other aspects of daily life, where there are new technologies and there are real risks and there are real benefits. So in the book, I talk a, just a little bit. I'm not an expert on this topic, but I talk a little bit about cellular phones. Uh, if you look at the literature on cellular phones, there are enormous benefits right, of these mobile technologies that we um, enjoy every day, almost every one of us, and there are also real damages that we uh, can observe. These include things like increased vehicle accidents. They include you know, people bumping into you when you're walking down the street and they've got their head in their phones. But there are also more long-term concerns where we don't have all the answers. There are some who are worried that increased use of cellular phones could increase the rates of certain cancer risks over time. And while the evidence uh, points to that not being a huge risk, I don't think it's been exactly ruled out either. So uh, my cell phone example is uh, 
you know, uh, fairly basic. But the central point is that if we applied the precautionary principle to every new technology in our lives and in our world without also thinking about the benefits that those technologies provide, then I think it's really hard to make good public policy. Now, taking this a step further, you know, as I read the book, something that struck me was the different levels of burden of proof that are faced by those who might oppose fracking versus those who generally support it. And and to put it simply, it's harder to definitively prove, as you point out in in the book, uh, that fracking is bad, for example, that it harms health, than it is to move forward and produce and deflect potential app, you know, allegations of the sort. What do you say to that, and, and what does that mean in, in a practical sense? I think as long as the world has a demand for hydrocarbons, for oil and gas, and as long as oil and gas production and consumption occur, there will be some level of pollution that occurs from the industry. Uh, There will be some amount of air pollution. There will be some amount of contamination of soil and potentially water sources. And that is a, a reality that is hard to get around. At the same time, there are pretty clear ways to reduce and minimize those risks, not reducing them to zero, but reducing them to ways that, as a society, we might uh, find acceptable. Uh, and as I tried to demonstrate with the, the cell phone example, and there are plenty of, of others that I'm sure we could all think of, it's very rare uh, that a particular industry is either all good or all bad. And I think the oil and gas industry is certainly uh, a case in point. Now, the, when we think about the long-term risks of the oil and gas industry, I think that there are good arguments to be concerned about local contamination and local pollution. But if you look at the history of the industry, if you look back 150 years to Oil City, Pennsylvania, or if you look back uh, 115 years to Beaumont, Texas and Spindletop, and you look to these other places where the oil industry has operated uh, for uh, you know decades and decades, What you find is that there are places where there is contamination. But what you also find is that there are cities that uh, have sprouted up and that are thriving uh, on top of these locations. So Beaumont, Texas is an example, Uh, Old City, Pennsylvania, Titusville. There are so many cities uh, that sit on top of what used to be large oil and gas fields that it's hard for me to think that the current Uh, spate of oil and gas development that we're seeing is going to lead to widespread city-level or uh, region-level contamination because we haven't seen it in these other historical cases. And in these historical cases, the technologies were more crude, uh, to to use a pun, and the protections were not as good as they are today. Uh, And so that's that's kind of how I think about the long-term risks associated with this industry, that they are real, but they are likely to be pretty localized. Uh, a couple more questions here. And, and, and the next uh, one refers to a, uh, a very, I think, a revealing passage, interesting passage near the end of your book. And um, it relates to a, a couple in Texas and the husband has spent his career working in the oil and gas industry. And he and his wife both support fracking. Yet the wife has serious misgivings uh, when um, oil and gas development threatens her favorite place in Texas. Uh, it was interesting. You know, what, what conclusion do you draw from this? And is there a, a kind of a larger implication here? 
I think the the implication that that I think your listeners will will see as I tell the story is that again just the central theme of this book, which is that things are complex, uh, and that even supporters uh, of the industry. Um, can feel uncomfortable with it if it's under the right conditions. So, so the story is about uh, a, a friend and, and colleague of mine named Rick, who works for a pretty large independent oil and gas company. He and his wife Janice have moved around the country working uh, in the industry, and they've seen the economic benefits uh, that the industry provides, both to them on a personal level and also to the communities that they operate. They also are pretty uh, pretty happy with the way that most operators in their industry work. It's really hard to uh, safely produce oil and natural gas under the extreme pressures and technical challenges that the industry deals with on a day-to-day basis. And while there certainly are cases of pollution, uh, Rick uh, has explained to me that generally he thinks they do a, a pretty darn good job of minimizing those cases of pollution. Now, there was recently the announcement of a large uh, discovery of oil and natural gas in a previously undrilled portion of West Texas. And the, the oil and gas play was called Alpine High. It's right near this uh, beautiful little town called Balmoray in West Texas. And Balmoray has uh, these wonderful natural springs where you can go swimming year-round. Uh, they've got really nice little shops and restaurants in the town. There are beautiful mountains in the area. There's uh, a, a deep space observatory that relies on dark night skies uh, in those mountains. And so Alpine High is a place where there hadn't been drilling before, And it's a special place to many people, including uh, Janice, Rick's wife. Now, even though Janice and Rick support the industry, uh, Janice doesn't want drilling to happen in this special place. Uh, She is concerned that it'll spoil the views. Many people are worried that there could be some risk to the the springs in Balmoray. There's also concern about making the sky less dark, which would negatively affect the observatory. There are other issues uh, that are specific to the region as well. And my my message in conveying that story is similar to the one that uh, that I try to convey with the Dimmick story, which is uh, for people who uh, think that the industry is either all good or all bad. When you get out to these regions and you start talking to these people, it becomes pretty clear, pretty fast uh, that there is a misc. Excuse me, that there is a mix of risks and benefits, and that uh, the best policies, I think, are going to try to balance those uh, benefits and rewards. So let me ask you this: after you know, all of the research that you've done and the many people that you've met in many different places. Was there a unexpected finding or big surprise uh, on any level that, that, that stood out uh, following all of this for you? Well, I think we've, we've touched on a couple of them. I, to me, the, the story of Alpine High and the story of Dimmick are both um, – were both really fascinating to me, and that's why I talk about them in the book, because they um, – they run counter to the simple narratives that we might hear often uh, about this topic of fracking. One other thing that's really surprised me and has surprised many observers uh, in the world of oil and gas over the last, you know, five years in particular, is the um, is the pace of continued 
technological improvement in the industry. So when shale development really got going in you know 2007, 2008, we started to see large volumes of shale gas come on the market. There were a number of commentators who were skeptical and who didn't think that uh, the technology would continue to evolve, and uh, they expected, excuse me, they expected that. Uh, these shale plays would dry up relatively quickly. And the same thing has been true for the history of the oil and gas industry, really, which is uh, many have been skeptical that technology will be able to continue improving and continue producing quantities of oil and gas that can satisfy the market demand. And what's really amazed me over the last five or ten years, as natural gas prices have dropped to historic lows, and of oil price, as oil prices dropped in 2014 and have stayed relatively low since then, the industry continues to improve, and they continue to find ways uh, to get oil and natural gas out of the ground cost-effectively. So that's been surprising and just fascinating to watch on a technical level. It also has important policy implications, which is that... Uh, for for those of us, and I count myself among them, who care a lot about the, the challenge of climate change and dealing with the challenge of climate change, the problem of climate change isn't going to be solved by trying to restrict supply because companies will continue to find new areas and new technologies to deploy to satisfy demand if demand is there. Instead, the policy approach that I think makes the most sense is trying to focus on reducing uh, demand uh, for fuels that are polluting and for uh, putting policies in place that are sensible, like a price on carbon uh, and, uh, and investing in research and development for the energy technologies of the future that can put us on a, a sustainable path moving forward. Uh, and so those two... Um, aspects, uh, I think, are interlocking the idea of technological development and policy uncertainty. And I think they have huge implications for uh, the United States and for the world as a whole. Thanks. And I have one final question for you here. Did, did the, your work on this book and the experience of writing this book uh, change your view of fracking? And if it did, how? Well, I think it, it won't be a big surprise to to your listeners who have gotten to this point in the podcast that that my views uh, have changed and that they've changed uh, towards the middle. So when I first started researching this topic, one of the first things I did is I watched the film Gasland, which I, I think came out in 2010. It was a, a Academy Award-nominated documentary, and uh, it's a film that really makes fracking look re- like look horrible, right? It makes it look like it's contaminating water all over the uh, United States. It makes it look like it is making people sick all over the United States uh, and that it is a um, sort of major pressing public and environmental health risk. Now, I didn't necessarily buy all of that when I watched the, the film at first, but as I learned more about the industry, uh, I learned that things were, were not that simple. At the same time, I would go to oil and gas industry conferences and I would uh, listen to speakers at the podium essentially making fun of anyone who raised concerns about the environmental risks of the oil and gas industry or who would mock people for being concerned about the big challenge of climate change. And so my views on fracking have, uh, I think, 
trended away from those extremes and trended towards trying to find constructive solutions that can minimize the risks and maximize the benefits of these amazing new technologies that are out there in the world. Daniel, thank you very much for talking. Thanks very much, Andy. I've enjoyed it. Today's guest has been Daniel Ramey, author of the book, The Fracking Debate. For more insights into energy policy and for updates on research and events from the Climate Center for Energy Policy, subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy, or visit our website, climateenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 